Welcome to the Sunday evening service at Bible Baptist Church in Hampton, Georgia, where the Bible is opened and explained, Christians are encouraged, and Christ is lifted up. Thank you for joining us, and may your hearts be blessed as God's Word is taught. And now, enjoy this message from Bible Baptist Church. Amen. Thank you, Sarah. What a reminder to all of us that in this very place, God is here. Paul would remind his listeners that he is not far away. Isn't that great to know that God is a God who is near? And tonight, whatever you're seeking for in terms of life and righteousness, God provides and it's in abundance and he is close by, convenient to your cry. It's a great reminder. Thank you, Sarah. I appreciate the way Sarah presents music for us. I looked up here and not a single note or any music here at all. She usually sings right from her heart, memorized pieces. So thank you. It's not easy to do. And so we appreciate that ministry of music. Well, Marcus, I, when he first came, I said, Marcus, one of these days before you get back to college, I want you to preach for us. He's a Bible major, faith. And God has uh, used him uh, in a great way. He's gone on visits with me, uh, and he's been a blessing to witness uh, in, a, in a couple of occasions with folks nearby to our area, and he's had a heart for others, and, and it's just been a blessing. He has a special spirit, amen? He can tell it in his smile, his face, and his heart, and we just love interns as they come, and he's been a, a real joy to me personally, and thank you for that, and we're just going to turn the pulpit over to you and trust the Lord to use you in a special way tonight. Be praying for you as you go back, and we'll miss you, of course, when you're gone, but to, with Emily here, you'll never be far away, so we're thankful for that. You come, brother, and preach to us. Good evening. I say this with true sincerity. It is an absolute honor to stand here. It's also an honor to have lived here and to have known you all this past summer. To think that'll be going in the next couple of days, it does make me sad, but to be able to stand here and share the very, very words of God, I count it a, a privilege. So thank you, thank you, Pastor Year. Thank you for everyone who's poured into not only me, but also uh, Emily while we've been here together. I was asked to share something that God has laid on my heart recently for you all. And I'll preface what I share tonight with just a couple of things. See, I hope not to speak from any lofty, prideful point of view, knowing that there are many here who have been walking with the Lord longer than I've been alive. But I hope to encourage those who are already doing this and maybe in the most loving way that I can gently nudge, give a loving nudge to those who may not be or may be struggling to be doing this. What I share from my heart, I hope comes based solely from the Word of God and comes out from the Word of God, knowing that what we need to hear most is not the opinion of another man, but from God himself. And I truly am thankful that God has shown himself to us through his Word, and I truly, truly believe that what he has said in it is absolutely true. 
And not true just for fact's sake, but true for the changing of a life to be glorifying and magnifying to God. So I have a goal for tonight. My goal is this, to communicate one key idea, one simple idea, maybe as my going away address, if you will, based out of Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. If you have a Bible, feel free to turn there. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. So it's to communicate one idea and explaining it in two simple directions, two simple ways, and then let that idea be applied and have it be embraced in our lives, in your lives, no matter what kind of change it will bring, knowing that it is God, right, who works both who works in us both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Philippians 2:13. God is pleased. God gets happy when he's making our lives look and be more and more like his son Jesus. So I'm going to pray, then read our text and then say the idea for tonight. Let's pray. Father, you're wonderful. You're powerful. You are greater than he who is in the world, and no sin of ours, no weakness of ours is great enough to stop your wonderful plan to glorify your name among the nations. And I pray, we pray right now that you would do just that, that I would not be a distraction, but these people, that I, that the world around us would see the glory of yourself in spite of us. So thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your spirit working in us. Use us for your glory, O Lord. We love you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So here's the text. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 2 say this. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which doth so easily beset us, And let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. So here's the idea. Here's the main point. Bible Baptist Church, Bible Baptist Christian School, all the members here, Live your whole life to the glory of God with your eyes fixed on the glory of Jesus. If you're taking notes tonight, I'll say it again. The main idea is this. Live your whole life to the glory of God, everything, every part of your life, with your eyes fixed on the glory of Jesus. I'm sure we've all heard something similar to this, so why? Why do I share this? Do I share this only because I believe that this is the thing Christians do? Or does living our whole lives to the glory of God with our eyes fixed on the glory of Jesus, does that, does that earn us something that we deserve? Do we get something from that favor? Or Is it because glorifying God is something I'm to tack onto my life now that I'm a Christian? I mean, what does that even mean, glorifying God? 
What's the point of this? Just last week, I ordered from Amazon a nifty little tool that I know a lot of you men will know of. It's a Leatherman. It's called a Leatherman. It's about this big. Um, it looks like pliers, but in this Leatherman holds almost from 9 to 18 different little tools in that thing, and it's sturdy, lifelong guarantee. And so I've used, and I've, I've used that this week, and I've learned that, man, oh man, am I thankful that I have my little Leatherman. Any kind of tool that I have, especially while I'm working maintenance here, I can just pull that thing out. It's actually in my pocket right here, just in case. You never know what you might need it for. But it just makes life and the job so much more convenient, so much more easy, comfortable. You men know what I'm talking about. Sometimes, maybe a lot of people here, myself included, sadly treat glorifying God as a mere tool in our lives, that if we use it in the right way, in the right circumstance, in the right context, it'll make my life just a little bit easier, just a little bit more comfortable, just a little bit more convenient. What happened on Calvary didn't occur so that we would have more convenient and comfortable lives. What happened on Calvary occurred so that Christ could free us from our sinful and our selfish selves and allow us to live lives that make him bigger for all to see. See, glorifying God, this is what it means, glorifying God, magnifying him, having others see him more from our lives and our actions and our words and our deeds and our decisions, glorifying him because he's worth it. He's worth it both to believers and unbelievers. Glorifying God isn't something that Christians just do, just add on to their to-do list of everyday things. It isn't a tool in our toolbox of life. This is what it is, and I truly believe this. The glory and the praise of God is the central theme and the primary end of all things, all things. And therefore, our whole lives. Listen to these passages. They're just gold. Psalm 29, verses 1 and 2. Give unto the Lord, O ye mighty. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Psalm 107, verse 8. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness. And for his wonderful works to the children of men. Psalm 117.1 says, Oh, praise the Lord, all ye nations. Praise him, all ye people. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, you guys know the end, do all to the glory of God. As believers covered by the blood of Christ, our lives are not our lives anymore. How often do we usurp the majesty and the honor and the glory and the power that belongs to God alone? How often do we usurp that with how we view him and with how we live our lives? 
our lives should be spotlights that shine directly on God. You know those spotlights that you might see at car shows late at night? It's, they're big, bright, they go from left and right in the sky and they cross each other. They're just shining to the night sky. Our lives should be like spotlights, but not shining in the darkness of this world, but directly onto God so that all would see how awesome He already is. See, we're not polishing off the dust of God because He needs to be cleaned. He's already pure and perfect. The world doesn't see Him, but He has a mission to make the nations praise and glorify Him. Our lives should be like that spotlight. I had a conversation I appreciate him much. With Joe Taylor this morning after uh, Sunday school, he taught on God's plan for the gospel. And something that we talked about really stood out, and it's this. God has saved us. We're pleasing in his sight. We don't need to do anything. We don't need to make a to-do list or, or put our efforts in so that God would, be, would, would see us and see you I am favored with because of what you've done. Christ has put his robes on us. And when God sees us, he sees Christ. So we don't need to do that. He's done everything. So why live for anything else except for God to be glorified? The author of Hebrews understood this as he penned verses 1 and 2 in chapter 12. So we have a mission. So what is this mission of living our whole lives to the glory of God with our eyes fixed on the glory of Jesus even look like? Two ways. The first way is this, if you're taking notes. First way is this, get rid of anything and everything that would stop you from living for Jesus. Get rid of anything and everything that would stop you from living for Jesus. Look down at verse 1. Wherefore, seeing we also are surrounded or compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Okay, we want to practice good Bible study principles, Bible study skills, right? We see a wherefore or a therefore, so we're forced to ask the question, what is the therefore, therefore, right? And that therefore commands us to look back at chapter 11. So what does chapter 11 say? What does it talk about? It's the hall of faith, rightfully called so. At least 16 named individuals who lived their lives faithfully for God with the help and grace of God. But there were more. There were countless, countless unnamed faithful ones who saw God and he counted everything that he said as better than what the world says or what even what themselves could ever offer. A multitude of people who stood faithfully and lived to glorify God and to point others to the satisfaction in Him and the joy that He provides and the happiness that He provides and His promises that stay true to the end of time. Myriads of martyrs, myriads of witnesses. That's what the author says in chapter 11. He essentially says, look, look at the people who saw the unseeable God in faith. Look at all the people around you. They surround you. You walk not alone. So because of these people who saw God for who he said he is, wonderful, majestic, mighty, satisfying, despite the disappointments that people in their lives make, despite the hardship, despite the hurt that people do to them, all believers are called to action. 
And so what is that? We have two exhortations in verse 1. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Quickly unpacking this, let's look at the first expectation or exhortation marked by the phrase, let us. These Christians, and in the same way we are to lay aside, we're to give up something. And what's that? Our weights and our sins. Now, for the most part, we understand our sins, right? There's no question about that. But what are our weights? Our weights. Our weights are the things that aren't necessarily sinful, but they aren't necessarily the most helpful either. You know what I'm talking about? It's when you're faced, whatever it is, this conversation, this habit, this decision, this thought, this desire, fill in the blank, will it better help me to love, live for, glorify God, or will it just be a distraction? Will it just hinder me? Our weights and our sins, what do they do to us? Because they do something to us. It's not just there objectively. What do they do? We'll look back down at the text. The middle of verse 1 says that they so easily beset us. The idea here is that they skillfully surround us. They entangle us. See, there are things that are sinful and just clearly unhelpful things that we do, that we think of, that we believe, that we cherish, that we cling to with all of our might. Those are things that they just wrap us up in themselves and make us trapped and they distract our thoughts and desires and ultimately, ultimately keep us from glorifying and magnifying and seeing, knowing, loving, and making Jesus look bigger and better, both in our personal lives and also to those around us. So, not, or so by the grace of God and by the help of God, we are to give them up, but not just for the sake of giving up something, but in, in doing so, we grasp hold of the cross of Jesus, knowing that it's better than any sin or any mediocre thing that this world or our own hearts deceive us to want. So we give them all up, and then we run. Look at the second let us in verse 1. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us. The idea behind run here is to exert yourself, to strive hard. You spend your strength in performing or attaining something. See, when you became united with Jesus at the time he saved you by his grace alone, by means of faith, through the means of faith, in him alone, you were entered into a race. Did you know that? You were removed from the sideline of sin and placed into the race of Christ for his glory. But while running, you endure. And that's what patience means. Despite the hindrances and the hardships that come with the race, you run on. Our life, it's a race. And by grace, wonderfully working, we must push and push and push and push and push. We give it our all with God always with us. 
and helping us and enabling us to live for him. A couple of teachers may know this. Just a couple of days ago, I made a small, tiny friend. I was, my attention was drawn to the pavement of the road after I took a break from mowing. And a small turtle was just sitting there. So I went over, picked it up, and I decided to go visit my lovely fiancé who was working in her classroom. In moving from the parking lot to her classroom, I named the turtle Washington. Why? That's just what came to mind. So I came to Emily's classroom, showed her the turtle. She was ecstatic. And I did and said the most logical thing that any man would think of. I told Emily, I'm going to tape Washington, I'm going to duct tape him to the mower, and I'm going to take him around campus. We're just going to have all the adventures. It's going to be awesome. Don't worry, I didn't do that. That's animal cruelty. And although that sounds silly, although it would have been fun for a fleeting second, it wouldn't have been helpful. It probably would have just hindered me from doing the job that I'm supposed to do, which is maintain things here at Bible Baptist. Again, in a very silly way that somewhat illustrates our weights and our sins and our race. Our weights and our sins stop us. They keep us from pushing and pressing on forward to the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. They keep us from loving Him with all of our hearts and our souls and our mind and our strength. Now, do we lose things? Do we lose parts of our salvation when we, when we fail to do this? No, no, we don't do that. But they cloud our vision. They distract us. They make us believe something that's God, that they make us believe that something is God when it's not. So in the life we now live today, because of the encouragement provided by previous faithful ones, there must be an acknowledgement of the beauty and the grace of God, which then moves us, right, to remove every possible hindrance of loving, of serving, of glorifying Him in our lives. And in doing so, we strive, sometimes painfully, sometimes in agony, sometimes in exhaustion, in doubt, in uncomfortable situations and circumstances, but we get rid of everything and anything that will stop us from living for Jesus. A life where my desires, my wants, my goals, whatever it may be, a life where I'm forgotten, but Jesus is remembered, is a life worth living. So that was the first way. The second way of this, of living our whole lives for the glory of God, with our eyes fixed on the glory of Jesus. This is the second way of what that looks like. Keep looking at Jesus. Keep looking at Jesus. So this race we're in, when we grow tired, we grow exhausted, confused, disappointed? What keeps us going? See, when the glory of God isn't our focus anymore, but we know we, it needs to be, it needs to be, what do we do? I mean, how could we possibly exert ourselves to the fullest in this sinful world, in our sinful lives? Look down at verse 2. Verse 2 says this, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down 
at the right hand of the throne of God. Where do we turn to? Who do we turn to in the struggle? Do we turn to ourselves? Do we turn to our old habits? Do we turn to our old efforts, our own devices, our own thoughts? Do we turn to the clouds of witnesses? No. We turn to Jesus. And this looking at Jesus, this staring at Jesus, it isn't a momentary glance or an occasional peek. It's as if your eyes and your thoughts and your heart are glued onto one person and one person alone, and that's Jesus. When your eyes are open, you see Jesus. When your eyes are closed, you still see Jesus. You don't see darkness because when your eyes are opened, you see Jesus. And there's no price. There's no fare. There were no requirements needed to gaze at the beauty of Jesus because he's paid it all. It's finished. Grace has freed us and enabled us to see and to stare at completely our Redeemer. So what does he look like? Look at the picture that the writer of Hebrews paints of Jesus. Who is he? He's the author. Look at verse 2. At first, I merely thought of this author. I thought of him as the one who, who began or started our faith, which is true, which is correct, but it's more than that here. See, Jesus is the one who leads us. He's the leader of our faith. Jesus is never far off ahead. He's never away, but he's so close. He's always in front. He is guiding each step, each yard, each breath. Hebrews chapter 13, the next chapter, verse 5, that's when we read, God will never leave thee, nor will he ever forsake thee. He's also the finisher Jesus set the perfect example of faith and trust in his race. In the life that he came down from heaven, the life that was just like ours, he finished it perfectly. I mean, the great cloud of witnesses that was in verse 1, they don't even compare to Jesus. And what did he do? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand the throne of God. So who do we see? We see Jesus, the very Son of God, taking with manly diligence the torments of the cross that we deserved for something better that he saw. Joy. We see Jesus bearing completely, but brushing off the shame, the hellish shame, one scholar says, that was meant to be showered on us. He bore that shame, but brushed it off his shoulder as if it meant nothing to him. We see Jesus in all of the work required to pay for the debt of sin that we owed. We see it finished. He's not scurrying around like the Old Testament priests getting one sacrifice after another after another. The blood flows. They can never sit down because the sin is so much. But we see him at the cross 
And when he said, it is finished. We see him sitting, signified by his sitting down in the position of power and glory on the throne of his father's, at his father's right side, completely and utterly glorified. How often do we wrongfully place, sadly place, Jesus in a small, sad little box by our failure to realize, to remember, and acknowledge his awesomeness? How often do we see Jesus in this way, what verse 2 says? Probably not enough, but that's okay. Because even though our view of God changes all the time, God never changes. See, gospel grace has freed us from our failures and granted us access to God in Christ through the power of His Spirit to stare, to look at, to gaze upon forever in awe of who our Savior is and what He's done. So to recap, we've seen the mission of the idea of living our whole lives, every single part of it, to the glory of God, with our eyes fixed on the glory of Jesus in two ways. First way is get rid of anything and everything that will stop you from looking at Jesus or living for Jesus. Way number two, keep looking at Jesus. Just a couple application applicational questions for you to write down and an illustration to close it off. Feel free to write any of these questions down, ones that stand out to you, or all of them, if they help. Question one is this. What do I tend to love more than Jesus? What do I tend to love more than Jesus? I ask this because what we love is what we glorify. See, much of the time, we sadly, in our own small ways, live as glory thieves. See, we take what glory and praise and focus that belongs to God and we place them on things that we think will satisfy and be our hope, our answer. And ultimately, we, in doing so, we crown ourselves as the king. Afterwards, we find out we're sorely disappointed and mistaken. If you're like me, you've experienced that many times. But the amazing thing about the gospel is that those who have believed They, they truly, they have everything that they could ever have or want in Jesus. There's no need to exhaust oneself, to exhaust yourself with pursuing the opinions of others, with living or trying to live a hardship-free life, with being or wanting the perfect spouse, in looking for the next cool toy or plaything, in having the perfect reputation or indulging in the sin that will never satisfy or fill in the blank. See, Jesus doesn't just fill a tiny hole in our lives and then finally makes us complete. Jesus is our entire life. He gives rest and satisfaction and comfort and joy And happiness. Another question is, what 
or who do my actions, words, decisions, and thoughts glorify more? What or who do my actions, words, decisions, and thoughts glorify more? The kingdom of self or the king? What does my view of Jesus look like tonight? What's the first thing that I think about in the morning? How often do I turn from looking at Jesus and how he's shown himself to us in his word? What lies am I believing or being tempted to believe that make me turn from Jesus? Ask yourself some questions. An illustration, then I'll finish it off here. The past couple evenings, this past week, at the Flurry household, we've been watching Pride and Prejudice. Not just the two-hour version, the five-hour, six-hour-long version. Yes. <laughs> I've enjoyed it, though, in small ways. And so, for those who watch Pride and Prejudice, you will understand this. And for those who haven't, don't worry, I'll still explain it in a way that makes sense to what is being talked about tonight, what I'm preaching here tonight. In Pride and Prejudice, there are two main characters, Mr. Darcy and Miss Elizabeth Bennet. See, as we've gone throughout each evening, there's one thing that is uh, made clear from the beginning. Mr. Darcy is madly in love with Miss Elizabeth Bennet. And how do we know that? In each episode, in each scene that they're together, Mr. Darcy never fails to stare straight at Miss Elizabeth Bennet no matter what. No matter what his friends say, no matter what she says, looks at her straight in the eyes with his blank stare too. Because he loves her and he sees how beautiful she is. In a silly way, and that illustrates what's been preached here tonight, but in a more infinitely valuable, you know, in a different way, whether in this school year, in this work quarter, in this month, in this week, in this day, in this evening, a life of doing hard things for the glory of God, by the grace of God, begins with, continues on during, and ends with staring at Jesus. Live your whole lives, Bible Baptist Church, to the glory of God, with your eyes fixed on the glory of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we've seen you in your word. We've seen how wonderful you are. We've seen how merciful and loving and caring you are. And we give praise and honor and glory to you because we are in Christ. And we know your spirit is working powerfully through us. The same power that was shown, that was expressed in Christ rising from the dead, that same power is working in us every day of our lives. So we thank you. Help us to live for you that others wouldn't see us, but they would see Christ. And that we would live for your glory. That we would see you every day of our lives. Thank you for your love. Thank you for the church. Glorify yourself among the nations from here tonight. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Great words from a great book. I'm thankful tonight for that message.
We are to remove the weights and the sins that so easily beset us, and we are to look to Jesus. What a great outline right there in the text. You know, there's a time, and the Lord said, For the joy that is set before me, I endure the cross. Do you know that your joy is proportional to your gaze at Christ? Early in his ministry, the Lord was surrounded by people after the feeding of the 5,000 that wanted to make him king. He was a king. It says for the, he, He's now set down at the right hand of the throne of God. But do you know what he did? He walked away from all those onlookers and those would-be uh, people who would bring him to the, uh, as king because he simply knew that his calling was to endure the cross the Bible says in John 6, he went out into a solitary place by himself and prayed. What a wonderful thing that God, who was staring at a cross versus being elevated to a political leader, chose the cross for the joy that was set before him. And I wonder sometimes if we get kind of confused or cross-eyed about opportunities. God has called us to set our focus on the Lord to endure the pain of this lifetime so that others might know the glory of the cross, the glory of the gospel. What a great challenge. Thank you tonight. It was wonderful. Let's stand together. And as we close, the piano is playing a hymn for us. Consider your own heart. What are you chasing? What rainbow? What perhaps diversion? What weight? What sin captures you? This moment of quietness as the piano plays. Why don't you... Ask God to give you His perspective. Turn from sin. Embrace Him. Glorify Him. Thank you for joining us today. Please tune in each week for new messages from Bible Baptist Church in Hampton, Georgia. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make His face to shine upon you.